right, good morning, everybody. You can be seated. Oh, it's, it's so good to be here with you. Um, if you're the type that likes to follow along an actual Bible, Ezekiel 18, um, we're gonna get to that um, in just a second. If you don't have an actual Bible or you just would prefer to follow along with slides or you don't know where Ezekiel is, don't worry. It's uh, gonna come up on the screen when we start here in a second. Hello to everybody in the balcony. Uh, a couple things before we get started. Um, first of all, um, this is all I do. I travel around and speak. I've had the incredible privilege of being mentored by a pastor with his rabbi training. So my stuff does come from that bent. Um, I, I've had a, I also have a master's degree in clinical psychology. So I am qualified to sort your head out. So, care, so careful, what you, careful what you say to me. I can see through all of it. On, on, on the way out today, um, by the information desk, we have a small table set up with our teaching resources on it. So if you hear this, you think, I want to hear more stuff like that. Um, it's out there. It's in USBs and audio and video. Um, 100% of the profit we make from that, we use to fund our missions in the world. We believe that we're not simply called to go to heaven when we die. We're called to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. And so our missions of choice is we have three children's homes in China that look after children with mental disabilities, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of the sex industry, off drugs, high school educated and job trained, so we could do our part to break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Flats. It is inappropriate to tell people, do not sell your body, if that's their only option to feed their family. They don't need Christians playing the moral platitude game. They need Christians coming in and bringing life and fresh starts and second chances, right? So. <clears throat> That's what we do. Now, it's been a year, exactly a year since I've been here. And so uh, since that time, we put out new stuff all the time. So we got a whole new series on the life of David out there. I just finished recording. I decided I decided to do something pretty brave. I decided to teach through the entire book of Romans. Um, and uh, that's out there as well. But if you didn't go by last time, everything's new to you. So come on, come on by. Um, I think, I don't remember if I had it last time, but the church leaders in Australia asked me to handle the whole sex and sexuality thing. Uh, this is going to sound like a, I'm making a joke, but my master's degree is in sex. That's true. So, I mean, I, I'm a theoretical expert. Okay. Now, in theory, I'm the best. In practice, pretty much crap. But in theory, <clears throat> in theory, I'm the best. And, uh, and so it's an 11-part series. Uh, just spoiler alert, there's nothing in there about actual sex. It's, it's, not a, it's not a technique manual, okay? That would be four minutes long. It's actually an 11-part series on how to think about that topic. Um, I've had it beta tested. Parents of 12-year-olds have been fine with listening to it in the car with their 12-year-old. So it's out there. It'll help you give some language and some more profound um, questions. The only other thing I want to say before we get going is I'd like to invite everybody back to the 6 p.m. service. Um, I, this is my fourth year being here, and you know I always put the best thing aside for the night. The reason is, is because I can invite everybody back in the morning who wouldn't normally come. I'm telling you, I've got something special tonight. If you give us an hour and a half, and that's the total time, hour and 20 minutes, hour and a half, um, I promise it'll change your life. If it doesn't, I'll personally, out of my own pocket, refund whatever it, they charge you to come. So, so whatever the ticket is, <clears throat> it's pretty risk-free. All right, <clears throat> so let's get into this. Thanks. Thanks, musicians, you guys are awesome. Unless you're gonna stand there and play the whole time I talk, which I, I might get a little awkward. But thank you guys, you guys are just amazing. So I'm gonna, <clears throat> I'm gonna read um, from a 3,000 year old prophet, okay? His name's Ezekiel, it's in the Bible. Um, and, and, and before we start, anytime you read something that's 3,000 years old, you have, to, you have to weigh the possibility that words back then meant something different than how we picture that same word working today. Because words don't matter. How you picture words working matters. And so, and so he's going to say some things 
in a way that ancient prophets said it. And, and if, if you've been following Christ for a while, I'm not worried about you. I'm worried if this is like your first time ever in church or like you just, you're seeking and you're wondering what Jesus is all about. And I don't want you interpreting these words um, in, in a different way. So, so the words are light, life, and increase. Now, when an ancient prophet used those words, he wasn't talking about heaven or the afterlife. And he wasn't talking about literal light. It was a metaphor for living in God's way. So you were said to, hey, hey, choose to be in the light as he is in the light. Hey, life or death, choose life that you might live. This was, this was not about literal living and dying or it had nothing to do with the afterlife. Not when Ezekiel wrote. It, it had to do with, with a realm of living here that led to wholeness, the, uh, abundance. Uh, and, and conversely, there's death, darkness, and decrease. That is the opposite of light, light, life and increase. And it, was, it wasn't about literal death or, or the afterlife. It, it, was about, it was about a way of living here that looks like death or a way of living here that looks like light. And, and in scripture, it's presented as a choice to live in God's ways. So in this passage, he's gonna say things like, the soul that sins is the one that will die. And I don't want anybody thinking he's talking about, if I make a mistake, I'll die. It's, it's not that. It's, it's, actually, it's actually, look, if you choose to live outside of a way that brings life, you can't help but expect that you're going to bring death on yourself. And so, so these are metaphors, all right? So now with that, there's this guy named Ezekiel, and he's writing to some Israelite slaves in Babylon. And he's trying to encourage them, but he does so by challenging them pretty heavy. This is Ezekiel 18, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes and now the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. The father ate sour grapes and now it's me that has my teeth set on edge. My mother ate sour grapes and now it's my teeth that are set on edge. It's the parents that ate sour grapes and now the children are the one suffering. And God says, I don't want to hear that out of your mouth one more second. Which leads to two questions. One, what does this proverb even mean? And two, why is God so apparently ticked off about it? So <clears throat> to understand this proverb, we have to understand a brief history of Israel. Okay, so I am going to try to summarize the entire history of Israel and the Old Testament in two minutes. You're gonna to have to pay very close attention. So if you don't understand the Old Testament, if you pay very close attention right now, in two minutes, you will understand the entire Old Testament and a brief history of Israel. We ready? Here we go. <coughs> there was a guy named Abraham and a son named Isaac who had a son named Jacob who had 12 children and 11 of those 12 children sold one of their brothers into slavery into Egypt only to later need him to save their sorry rents from a famine that hit Israel. And instead of killing them and taking vengeance on them, he forgave them and gave them a piece of land in Egypt. And he said, you guys settle there. And then they started procreating. They started having babies. And I mean, lots of babies and babies and babies and babies and babies and more babies and 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 babies until they overpopulate Egypt. See, the Egyptian king, a guy named Pharaoh panics about this. And he does the only reasonable thing he can think of, which is to put these people into slavery. 430 years later, God raises up a deliverer named Moses to get them out of slavery and into freedom by crossing the Red Sea. And he says, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to establish a kingdom that shows the whole world what I look like. And remember, I'm a slave liberator who maintains justice and righteousness to the poor. This, in short, turned out terribly. By the third king, a guy named Solomon, it says in the book of Kings, and this is the account of the slave labor that Solomon forced to build the temple to 
to the Lord. So if you're paying attention, a guy that comes from a lineage of freed slaves is now forcing slaves to build the temple to honor the God who frees the slaves. And he failed to see the irony in that. So this group of people end up back in slavery in a place called Babylon. And who do they blame? They blame Solomon. Why? Because he didn't do what he was supposed to do. They hated him so bad they wiped his name out of the historical record for 400 years, simply referring to him as David's son. Why? Because if you want someone to forget about people, you don't refer to them by their name. This is why if you've ever been through a divorce, you never refer to your ex by their name. That would be a lunatic thing. You say, my ex or the children's father. Either way. And so they would say, hey, it's David's son that failed. David's son is why we are where we are. David's son was the problem. That's why the prophets in Babylon had a message. And that message was, take heart, for God will bring a new son of David who will maintain justice and righteousness to the poor. Fast forward to Jesus. They called him lots of stuff. Jesus, our Savior. Jesus, our Lord. Rabbi Jesus. Jesus, a carpenter. Jesus, a guy that liked to fish. But the poor and the afflicted had one name for Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In other words, are you the new son of David the prophets of old spoke about? Because if you're the new son of David, that means you're here for the poor. Newsflash, I'm poor, which means you're here for me. <clears throat> the entire Old Testament in two minutes and 20 seconds. <laughs> If you got lost in any of that, come back now. <laughs> Here's what's happening in this passage. The current generation is blaming the previous generation for why they are the way they are. <laughs> We've never seen that before. <laughs> That's not relevant at all. Right? Look, I, I've been a pastor for years. Pastor Talk and Adrian have forgotten more about what they'll do for God, what they've done for God than I'll ever do. They're just champions. They've been at it longer than I've been alive. You know, Sam and Jody, they're, they're, it's just awesome. And listen, we like being pastors. We do, we do. There's parts of our job we don't like. And don't judge us for that. There's parts of your job you don't like, <laughs> right? Like for instance, we don't like having boring discussions about singular verses in Leviticus that you, we don't like that. If you find that interesting, or if you find conspiracy theories interesting, we don't. We find you boring. Okay? The, the, the other thing, the, the other thing, I'm just speaking for everybody, it's fine, right? The, the, the other thing, the other thing that we find not so nice is when we have to confront people's behavior. We don't like that. Occasionally you have to do it. And here's what it sounds like, sir, sir, cut it out, bro. You gotta cut, you're fixing to lose everything that's important to you. And the guy says, I know, I know. But if you knew what my dad was like, you would know why I am the way I am. My dad was a drunk, so I'm a drunk. My dad was abusive, so I'm abusive. My father ate sour grapes, and that's why my teeth are set on edge. Or ma'am, seriously, goodness me, you gotta cut it out. You're critical, cantankerous, jealous, possessive, and quite frankly, horrible. We don't wanna be the one to tell you this, but your husband is privately praying for a comet to come to earth to bring him sweet relief from you. <laughs> and she says, I know, I know. But if you knew what my mom was like, you would know why I am the way I am. 
My mom was critical, cantankerous, jealous, possessive, and horrible. So I'm critical, cantankerous, jealous, possessive, and horrible. My dad was bad with money. That's why I'm bad with money. My parents were horrible. That's why I'm horrible. My father ate sour grapes, and that's why my teeth are set on edge. And here's the problem with that. You're 40. And at what point do you draw a line in the sand and say, just because my parents were a certain way doesn't mean I'm doomed to perpetuate that into eternity. Look, I have a master's degree in clinical psychology. I can tell you why you are the way you are. If you're honest with me, I can tell you why. That's the easiest part of the job. Ray Charles can see why you are the way you are, right? Yeah, your mom's terrible. Yeah, I get it. Your mom's stubborn, possessive, controlling, so you are. I get it. If only one-tenth of what you're telling about your mom is true, I get why you are the way you are. I do. I, I do. But, but it's not your parents' fault for why you are the way you are unless you're eight. If you're eight, it's totally their fault. If you're an eight-year-old jerk, it is your parents' fault. But if you're a 40-year-old jerk... And what this passage is getting to is this, to whatever level we blame someone else for why we are the way we are is the level we disempower ourselves to change our lives. You say, Shane, you understand, man, you understand. My parents had issues. Really? Did they? Let me ask you a question. Were your parents a man and a woman trying to live together? Then there's going to be issues because marriage is hard and complex. Marriage is so complex, the Bible can't even agree on what to say about it. Is the Bible for or against marriage? Well, it depends on who you read. Solomon was like, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Solomon's opinion about marriage was marriage, rock. Let's do it a lot. Paul, Paul had a totally different, Paul's like, he who marries does not sin, but he signed up for a life of pain. (laughs) (laughs) What's the Bible say? I have a biblical view of marriage. Which one? Marriage. Let's do it. Marriage. Oh my God, make it your last choice ever. (laughs) Right? Right? Right. Why? Because it's different. Look. Even if you marry someone who's basically good-hearted and basically mentally healthy, marriage is still difficult because of preferences. Now, if you marry a lunatic, what would you like anybody to do? Right? But, but even if you, get, like just, and I mean, men and women prefer different things, even at the most basic level, like smells. <laughs> women prefer sweet-smelling things, flowers, perfume, candles. You hand any woman in this room a bouquet of flowers, every woman in this room is gonna sniff it. You hand a man some flowers, all he smells is 70 bucks. That's what that costs. <clears throat> right? Candles. You got a big mall over here. There's a shop that makes their entire living selling wax. How do you make your living selling wax, women? Go there, 11 in the morning, two women be sniffing wax, calling that fun. You'll never see two men doing that. Imagine that. Imagine two men in a candle shop. Hey, Billy, check that out. That's that new white lilac scent. That is... That is it. No way! No way! Why? Men prefer stinky things. 
There's nothing funnier to a group of men than when something stinky happens. We find that hilarious. Women evidently find that disgusting. They're supposed to live together. And it's in us. It's in the code of the man. The man can't... Look, if you have a rugby match and you're sweaty and bloody and nasty and you take your, your bloody, sweaty, nasty uniform off, put it in a plastic bag, tie it up and put it in the boot of your car. Three months later, you're looking for something in the boot of your car. And there's a bag with known stinky things in there. Every man in this room knows what must happen. It has to. You have to open that bag and you have to sniff it. All of us will do it. Oh, oh, oh. And here's the thing about men. If there's three men standing there, every man owes their friend a courtesy sniff of their thing. Right? It's, it's true. You'll watch grown men pass a known stink. Pass it around. They, oh, Bill, that's a good one. Oh, man. Oh, oh, man. Look, even if you train a man, when he takes off his dirty clothes at night and put it in the hamper, you know, the little dirty clothes collector thing, right? If you watch, if he doesn't think you're watching, if he thinks you're watching, he won't do this. But if, he's th if, if, if he thinks he's by himself, every man has done this, every single man. They'll take their clothes off, right? And I don't know why men always leave their socks to the end. Because nothing's more attractive than the side profile of a naked man in socks, you know? Anyway, they'll take their socks off that they wore all day. And just before they drop it in, it's involuntary. Just before they drop it in, they'll do this. They'll go. <laughs> It's like, yes, we prove it. And I promise you, if they don't smell bad enough, it'll be like. I think I can get one more wear out of this. I can tell you that right now. <clears throat> your parents had any, of course. You say, Shay, you understand. You understand my dad had issues. Really? Really? Yeah, of course your dad had issues. Everybody's dad has issues. My dad's a good man. He had issues. My dad was up at 4.30 this, this morning praying for this meeting. And he didn't tell me. I just know because that's where he is every morning at 4.30. He gets up at 4.15, prays. And he's, and he's been getting up progressively earlier through life. When I was a kid, it was 6, then 5.30 and 5. Nine. I was talking to him the other day. I said, he, he said, Shane, you don't think we're doing it. I'm thinking about getting up at 4 to pray at 4.15. I was like, Dad, if you live 10 more years, you're going to have to eat breakfast the night before. <laughs> it's getting ridiculous. But my dad had issues. He liked to scare us. And I'm not talking about like a mild boo. Like my dad, when I was like six, I was never been a morning person. I'd find it hard to wake up. So mom would wake me up, I'd sit on the side of the bed and I'd fall back asleep. And dad's like, I'm gonna break him of this. My mom didn't know this. She, he, he would hide under my bed. And then I'd sit up on the side of the bed and just about to fall asleep, he'd reach out and grab my feet. <laughs> I'm six. I think the boogeyman lives under there anyway. <laughs> he also liked to embarrass us. He thought it was hilarious. He was dropping me off one time for church camp, right? 105 junior high, you know, 13, 14 year olds going to camp. Pulls up in big buses. And he says, son, I love you. I believe in you. I'm gonna pray every day that God touches your life at camp. I said, thanks, dad. Love you too. See you later. He goes, hang on. Where's my kiss? I'm like, dad, God, please not right now. Like there's my friends and... He goes, all right, all right. I said, so I, I get off and, and I hand the bus driver my bag, get on the bus. I'm in the second last row. We're fixing to leave. I look up and to my horror, my father got on the bus. It was 42 degrees Celsius, right? He had, he'd pulled his shorts up to here. He had socks pulled up to here and he got on the bus with a limp and he grabbed the microphone to the bus and he said, excuse me, everybody. 
this bus isn't leaving until my shaney waney comes up here and gives me a kiss. <laughs> the whole bus starts chatting, kiss him, kiss him. Your dad had issues. Everybody's dad has issues. That's not the question. The question Ezekiel's bringing up is, is are we doomed to perpetuate darkness into perpetuity or are we empowered to perpetuate light into perpetuity? And at some point, you have to empower yourself by taking responsibility. Stop blaming other people for why you act the way you act and take responsibility. This is why, this is why the question we should never ask is, is am I normal? That's a terrible question. Because normal is a function of what you think was normal by the age of eight. How you were raised before the age of eight is what you think normal is. So the question isn't, am I acting normal? That question is, am I perpetuating what my family taught me to live like? The question is, 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 what, is what I think normal is, does it belong to light and life or death and darkness? That's the question. Because that's what we perpetuate forward. Hey, here's what Ezekiel says. He, this is the next verse, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse four. For everyone belongs to me. Mm. Stop. So, so any debate on who belongs to God and who doesn't is wasted breath. Are they living in God's world? Yes. Are they held together by God's name? Yes. Does God love them? Yes. Everyone belongs to me. The parent as well as the child, both belong to me. But the one who sins is the one that will die. See, See, they believed two things back then that we do not believe today, okay? But that's not important. What's important is what they thought because he's writing to them. They thought, and Ezekiel's being revolutionary, they thought that God loves certain people and not other people. Now, we would never say that. And they, and they also thought that you could tell who God loved by the quality of their current circumstance, right? So if your life's being destroyed, it's probably because your granddad did something. And God's still getting his pound of flesh from that, they thought it was possible that God would be destroying someone's life because of the sins of their great-grandfather, even though that guy's been dead for a while. Now, we would never think that today, but that's what they thought. And he's fixing to really confront that because that, that's, uh, what would you call that, F uh, fatalism. Like, it's like, well, I'm just, I'm just doomed because I can't undo what they did and God's ticked, right? So here's what he does. I'm not going to read. There's about 17 verses. I'm going to skip here, but I'll, I'll summarize it, okay? He says, okay, suppose a righteous man gives birth to a wicked man, and then the wicked man gives birth to a righteous man. So if you're paying attention, you have a righteous grandfather, a wicked son, and a righteous grandson. And then he just says this, who gets what from who? Does the righteous grandson inherit the righteousness of the grandfather or does the wickedness of the father ruin the whole thing? Or does the righteous grandfather's thing pass to the wickedness of the son? Or does the wickedness of the son go both ways? Which one? And the answer is none of the above. He does something that would have been so empowering. He says the good news is better than that. The good news is every generation could stand on their own two feet before God and choose light and life or death and darkness. And the ones that choose light and life will enjoy that. And the ones who choose death and darkness will get what they think they want. That would have been unbelievable. In verse 17, he summarizes his sermon. Here's what he says. He will not die for his father's sin. He's talking about the grandson. 
He'll not die for his father's sin. He will live. But his father will die for his own sin. Because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong amongst the people. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of the father? Now, why would they ask that? Because that's what they were taught their whole life. Look, when you're coming against what somebody was taught their whole life, you're going to get pushback, even if what you're saying is infinitely better. You're like, wait a minute, hold on. You're saying that the son doesn't share the guilt of the father? How? Watch Ezekiel's point. He says, why does the son not share the guilt of the father? Since, he, since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep my decrees, he'll live and not die. The one who sins is the one that, uh, yeah, the one who sins is the one that will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent. <laughs> Amen. Nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. Maybe a bigger. Amen. The, the righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them and the wickedness of the wicked will, will be charged against them. But if a wicked person turns away from the sins he's committing and does what is just and right, he will live and not die. I love this. Here's what he says. If you're on the road to death, darkness, and decrease, you're never too far down that road to make a choice and turn around and head back to life like an increase, right? So he says, okay, if you're on the road to death, just be honest with it. There's a difference between blaming and naming. Naming is necessary. That belongs to death. That was unjust. That's healthy. Blaming it as an excuse to just continue it, that's very toxic, right? So he says, okay, if you're on the road to death, call it death and turn around, right? And if you do that, you'll live. None of the offenses that he's committed will be remembered against him because of the righteous things he has done. Uh, keep going. None of the offenses he's committed will be remembered against him because of the righteous things he's done, they will live. Keep going. Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? Am I not pleased? In other words, God is not in heaven watching someone destroy themselves and going, I told you so. God is the one going, get off this road, change lanes, take the next exit. Seriously, this road goes nowhere good, right? Am I not pleased when they turn? But, but, but if a righteous person turns from their, their righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things a wicked person does, will they live? Well, no, none of the righteous things that they've done will be remembered because of their unfaithfulness they're guilty of and because of the sins they're committed, they'll die. In other words, here's what he says. This is brilliant wisdom. He says, if you're on your way to death, you have one choice, turn around. If you're on the way to life, you also have one choice, keep going. What, what he says is, is really good. He says, he's saying that good decisions do not work like savings accounts, right? So you don't get 20, if you make 20 years of good decisions, you don't then get 20 years of bad decisions before you get back to even. Like it's, and that's true. If you have the best marriage in the room, you're one bad decision away from it going wobbly. If you have the best business in the room, you're one bad decision away from it going wobbly. He's saying, if you're on the road to death, turn around. If you're on the road to life, keep going every single day. Let's see where he goes with this. Verse 25, yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. People were pushing back on this. Hero is, is it my way of this unjust or yours? If a righteous person turns in righteousness and commits sin, they'll die for it. Because the sins they're committed, they'll die. But if a wicked person turns away from his wickedness he's committing and turns away from them and does what is just and right, he, he will live and not die. He will save his life. Because they consider their offenses they've committed and turn away from them, that person will live and not die. 
Yet the Israelites say the way of the Lord is not just. Here, O Israel, is it my way or your way? Here's your way, okay? Here's what you were taught your whole life. And I get it. I'm not mad at you for it. But here's what you were taught your whole life. You were taught your whole life that God can destroy people for the sins of somebody else. And I get it. I get it. You were taught that your whole life. I'm telling you the good news is better than that. I'm telling you that every generation can stand on their own two feet and the ones that choose life and light, get light and life. The ones that choose death and darkness, get death and darkness. Stop blaming, take responsibility and be empowered to go forward. Which one sounds better to you? Therefore, here's the summary of the entire chapter. Therefore, oh house, therefore you Israelites, verse 30. Therefore you Israelites, I will judge you, but each according to your own way. How relieving would have that been? Repent, that just means turn around. Turn away from your offenses and sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. I'm gonna read that again because it's really important. Rid yourself of the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. Repent, turn around and live. Now, when you open a scripture, you really gotta ask two questions. One, what happened? What you just heard in the last 23 minutes is my best effort explaining what happened. The second question though is more important. And that is what's happening in me right now because of what happened? What are we gonna do with this? Great sermons aren't meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with for application. So let's, let's talk about what we do with this. Um, no, number one, all of us are shaped by our history and our heritage, okay? And let me be clear, it's not your fault. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't give them amorous feelings for each other. You didn't. Some people in this room grew up with awesome parents. And if you did today, if they're still alive, you should send them a text or go have a coffee with them and thank them for letting you start on third base. That's a baseball reference for a head start. Okay? Some of you had awful parents. Like they were truly, if you look back at your childhood, like who thought that was like, who thought that was okay? And they're terrible. And it's okay to name it. Don't name them as terrible, name the actions as terrible. It's two different things. It's okay. And look, let me be clear about this. It wasn't your fault. You should never have had to deal with that. What we think is normal is a function of how that happened. All of us. But the question isn't, are we normal? The question is, is what we think normal belong to death or life? Let's say it this way. Number two, we must take responsibility, turn around, and live. The phrase in Hebrew is called honor your father and your mother. I'm gonna handle the elephant in the room. Um, in a room this size, it is statistically impossible that there's not a few of you right now going, oh, great. 
This is why I never come to church on Father's Day or Mother's Day, because someone who has never met me is gonna stand on a stage and use the Bible to tell me I should honor my father and my mother. What a load of crap, because you just stood on a stage and you told the worst stories about your father you could think of, and they were hilarious. But if I got up on a stage and said what my mom did and said what my dad did, it would not be funny. I actually might not be allowed to share it because it would be too heavy. And you're gonna stand up there and tell me to honor my father and mother? Nonsense, no way. What do you say to me, bro? Okay, totally fair. If you'll give me a few minutes here, I think I can help you, okay? First of all, I'm so sorry for what you went through. It is not within a child's psychology to deal with adult emotions. So if your mom or dad drew you into their stress and made you try to process adult emotions, that's not okay. If they made you choose sides in their conflict, that's not okay. If they made you deal with their emotional stress around finance, you're not meant to carry that. And especially you're not meant to deal with adult violence. If someone 10 times your size with 100 times your resources is beating the stew out of you, that is not okay, okay? And I'm so sorry that you dealt with it, but The only hope for your life is to honor your father and mother. Let me explain. Words matter less than how you picture words functioning. So if I say honor your father and what you hear is pretend he didn't do it, pretend it was okay. Hey, pretend all that's fine. That's not what honor is. Honor in Hebrew has nothing to do with what you say to a person. It has everything to do with how you live away from them. And you know this to be true. If you're a parent and your 16-year-old said, mom, dad, I honor you. Well, that would bless your heart. It would. You'd also wonder, what do you want, right? But, <laughs> but what's more honoring is not what they say to you. What's more honoring is knowing that they live in a way that honors your family values when they're not with you. When they're out with their friends in Auckland at night, you want to know how they're living out there. Same with pastoring. If you said, Pastor Jody, Pastor Sam, Pastor Todd, Pastor Ed, I I honor you. That's called encouragement, and you should. But true honor is living in a way that honors the values of Church Unlimited out there, not what you say to someone in here. So when the scripture says, honor your father and mother, it's not pretending it was okay. It's not just being nice despite all of that. And it's certainly not letting someone just keep on doing it. It's actually more profound than that. Honor is naming it. That was not okay. That was death. That was darkness. And as of right now, I'm drawing a line in the sand. And as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. We are gonna perpetuate light and life and not death and darkness. Honor your father and mother is a decision to eradicate death and darkness and perpetuate light and life. My father's prayer discipline needs to go forward. His generosity needs to go forward. His work ethic needs to go forward. His affection to scare six-year-olds needs to die with him. (laughs) 
that's honor. And all of us right now need to do an inventory, make a decision today to be the hero of your family tree. Because if you don't, you'll leave it for your children. Why would you do that? I get asked, I travel the world, I, I get asked occasionally, Shane, you must come from a long line of educated preachers. No. All four of my great-grandparents couldn't read. <laughs> they were illiterate. My great-grandfather was a member of a racist organization called the Ku Klux Klan. He made his living moonshining. If you don't know what that is, that's running illegal liquor across state lines. My great-grandfather was an illiterate moonshining racist. <laughs> if my great-grandfather appeared in this room right now, he would panic. There's so much color. Most of you aren't white. My great-grandfather would think this was hell. He would. How do you go from illiterate, moonshining racist to a guy with three university degrees traveling the world talking about the compassion of Jesus for all people? How do you do that? I can tell you how. My parents drew a line in the sand and said, you know what? As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. We're not gonna blame that. No, 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 no. Our children will go to school. Our children will read books. Our children will learn the compassion of Jesus. And our children will not be racist because that's just stupid. And in one generation, they changed everything. What better way to honor my great-grandfather today than to live like I am? What, you, what happened to you is terrible, but your hope is to choose to honor. Eradicate death, perpetuate life. And here's what's so critical to the story. Number three, when we choose to live in God's ways, God gives us a new heart and a new spirit. He says, rid yourself of your offenses and get a new heart and a new spirit. See, there's two ways to preach this, right? One is, is to say, you need a healing in your heart before you can act better. And we've all had those thoughts, you know? You've seen someone just acting like a jerk and you're like, oh, bless their heart. They just need healing. And if they could just get healing, they could act better. Okay. I think the story's better than that. Ezekiel's take, and it's not that there's no truth in that. It's just Ezekiel's take, I think, is more empowering. Ezekiel says, wait a minute. God is not interested in healing your heart. He's not interested in healing your heart. And some things you can't be healed from. What? Some violations are so personal and so horrible, you're gonna wait till your heart is completely healed from that to choose to behave better? No way. And that's the beauty of what Ezekiel's saying. He's saying God is not interested in healing your heart. He's interested in giving you a brand new heart. Why, why would you walk around with a patched up heart when there's a heart transplant waiting on you? And here's what he says. If you'll by faith choose to behave in the light and you pay attention, that new heart and the new spirit is wrapped up in the faith it takes to live in life and light. This. So I want to, I want to pray for you and, and um, I'm gonna ask you to quietly involve yourself in these prayers if the Holy Spirit moves you, okay? Uh, only if the, if the Holy Spirit doesn't move you, don't do anything. There's no vacancy in the Trinity for me and I will not manipulate you. 
But there's some people in this room that are getting healed right now with a heart transplant because it's already starting your decision. Lord, give us the courage to see things different. The irresistible urge to respond to what we see. First prayer, Jesus, give us the courage today to audit our family habits and ask if they belong to life and light or death and darkness. Give us the courage to choose life and eradicate death. Second prayer, Lord Jesus, may no one ever reject you because of how we're presenting you. May no one ever reject you because of how we're presenting you. Third prayer, Jesus, give me the bravery to honor my father and mother. Show me the way forward and give me a new heart. Amen. Would you look this way? Thank you so much for letting me be a part of your morning. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures got bigger, not smaller. For every one of our family watching online, we love you. I hope that was true for you as well, that Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures got bigger, not smaller.